Hi, everyone. This is Samira Daswani here, the host of the podcast, The Patient from Hell. Today, we have another PCORI-funded uh, episode. And under that umbrella, I have the honor of having two guests with us. I have Glenn and Danielle with us. And these are two experts in the world of shared decision-making, creating tools for both patients and clinicians to help us make better, more informed decisions in the world of medicine. But before I invite them to share their uh, stories and introductions, I want to read an opening paragraph that I found on one of the many websites that both Danielle and Glenn work on. So if it's okay with our guests, I'm going to do a quick, uh, quick paragraph read and then uh, ask you guys to, to jump in. So here we go. I believe, Glenn, this is your writing. So it goes, limiting the harmful effect of power imbalance in medical practice lies at the core of my scientific work. How can we make sure that people make decisions with the best possible information about the inherent trade-offs that exist when considering treatments? What skills do clinicians need to facilitate collaboration and a careful deliberation process? Are there attitudinal or cultural barriers that need to be tackled? Is the ethical imperative to involve people in decisions not sufficient? So with that opening paragraph, I would love for you guys to just come in, give us like a 30 second overview of who you are, what made you write that paragraph? And then I have a, a few questions for you guys. So okay. maybe Glenn, you want to start? Don't quite know where you found that. I don't even remember writing it, honestly. Um, but it sounded okay. And I did agree with it, actually. <laughs> um, so I'm a family doctor by background, actually. I worked in the United Kingdom, in Wales, in fact, uh, for many years before I came to Dartmouth College to run a research group on something we call shared decision-making, which is about involving people in decisions that are important in their life, particularly around healthcare. So, you know, the, the work we've been doing is about very simply saying there are probably more than one treatment that you could possibly think of and how are we going to choose the right one for you? That's simply what it's all about. And Danielle has been with me for many years. Danielle, do you want to tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, Danielle Shumi. I've been working with Glenn since 2017 um, in the shared decision-making research. Um, and I'm also completing a PhD um, soon um, in this topic as well. And uh, we've worked on several projects in shared decision-making. I know we'll be talking today about early stage breast cancer um, and was there. We were both there for what matters most. And now I'm um, working on a project, an implementation project of those tools now. So we've been able to take that research and translate it into um, kind of real world implementation and change. That's awesome. Thank you, Danielle. Uh, so to answer the question that uh, Glenn, you brought up, we found that on your website, on I believe the Dartmouth Overview website. So. Uh, and it was attributed to you. So I, I'm hoping that that is uh, at some point. Um, the place I actually want to start this conversation is, is not with the specific research that uh, both of you did, but actually with the last sentence of that paragraph. So I'm just going to repeat that sentence and I'd love to open there, which is, is the ethical imperative to involve people in decisions not sufficient? 
So mm -hmm. my question for both of you is why, why is involving the patient in a medical decision an ethical imperative? Um, well, I, I think not to involve the patient may be easier to answer, you know, why would you not be interested in what people think about how they would like to be treated? Um, it's very strange to me that you wouldn't actually describe what's likely to happen um, if you used treatment A versus treatment B. Um, we know that treatments are very different to each other. They have different harms as well as benefits. Um, the, the outcomes are different. The probabilities of good things and bad things happen are very different. And I happen to think that people would have strong opinions about what they think fits best in their life. So for me, it would be really unethical not to do that, not to explain to people that um, what the likely consequences in the future are of deciding to go down one pathway versus another pathway. Um, in most other um, walks of life, uh, when you face a choice, people try, I hope, to explain what's going to happen to you. And, uh, you know, when you're making a choice about an important house or car or partner, you'd like to be trying to go into that decision with your eyes wide open. And I, what I'm trying to do for medicine is to have people's eyes wide open as to the future. Uh, so Glenn, I, the reason I asked you that question is not just to poke holes in it, but I, I, for what it's worth, the podcast is called The Patient from Hell. I skew very activated as a patient. I absolutely am the patient who wants to know every single possible thing under the sun before I feel prepared to be in that decision-making zone. But I also have learned that there are a numerous number of patients who are not like me. And there are patients who default to some version of either I trust my doctor and I want them to make the call. I actually don't want to know the pros and cons. I don't want to have to think about it. I have full faith in my clinician and will do essentially whatever they want me to do. So that's one archetype. Mm -hmm. The second archetype, which not so common in the US, but I grew up in India. Um, in Asian cultures, oftentimes a patient doesn't even know the diagnosis, mm -hmm. right? The family yeah. member knows the diagnosis. So mm -hmm. in, in cultural uh, context or attitudinal context like that, how do you think about the patient being involved in decision-making? Yeah, those are good points. And of course, we, there are many people who say initially, at least, I don't want any more information. Um, I just trust you, tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Um, and and I, I think there are people who really think that um, and who believe that. But I still think that if one took the time to explain, um, um, that's okay. Um, I'm perfectly willing to make a decision for you, um, patients from hell, um, you know, um, um, what I would like you to do, though, is to listen to me describe one treatment option and then listen to me describe the other one. 
and tell you tell me what how you react um what feels good about number uh, option one what feels good about option two and what do you think your family would think about these options would they have an opinion you might have you know you might develop a preference um you might not like um some of the harms that come along with one treatment and you could tell me and you might really want some of the benefits that come with the other treatment and you, you're free to tell me i'm not going to press you to make a decision not at all i'm never going to abandon you but once i know how you feel about these options i can guide you i can guide you and make a decision for you but i'm not going to do that without knowing who you are where what you want to do with your life what your goals are what's important to you what your priorities are i i basically want to know who you are before i can even make a, a decision about what treatment to give you that's how i would handle the first patient um, mm -hmm. the second patient who doesn't know the diagnosis that's really difficult um, in cultures where a family member or son or daughter holding all the responsibility for the diagnosis and therefore what to do i think that's really difficult and i haven't personally met that culture myself very often um, i did meet it actually in some situations especially where a typically female member didn't speak the language of the uh, country and the male or son was speaking for her and that was really difficult i would tend to want to use an interpreter in that situation or i would probably try and encourage the family member to to work with me in such in such a way that um, i might just describe it i understand that your um you don't want me to divulge the diagnosis to this person that i'm looking after but that puts me in a very difficult position actually um um in a way my responsibility is to this person not to you as a family member and i would try my best i think to talk them to say what degree of openness can we have about at, if it's not the diagnosis at least the treatments if you want to keep the cancer typically a secret that's okay but i want to explain that there are different ways of managing this and i want you to ask your mother or father whoever it might be what are their views about these situations and maybe you could um help me do that so it takes a lot of skill uh, and a lot of time and that's one of the barriers to this approach right to do that well especially in complicated family situations where the responsibility is distributed to the family rather than to the patient themselves danielle have you met this kind of situation with a family member who doesn't want to know something um i think we're living in a day and age where patients probably know the most about their healthcare than they've ever known i think there's a lot just even in western culture you know not knowing a lot about family history of diagnoses because of keeping those things um kind of secret you know it doesn't pass on to the next generation 
Um, in which case, like Lynn was explaining, then you kind of put the impetus on the caregivers or whoever is then making that decision. But to not include the, the person, the patient at all in the decision making feels so wrong in the sense of there is no like what information is the patient receiving? You know, um, are you just doing things to the patient rather than letting the patient have a voice in their care? Um, so I think I think we've I think I've seen it, you know, personally, um, just knowing kind of how things go with family histories and things like that. But I think nowadays we rarely see that other than in the um, other than in the context of maybe the patient is relying on the caregiver or somebody in the appointment to be taking all those notes. Maybe they don't want to make that decision alone. I think there's a lot of caregiver involvement now. Um but I think that's to the extent now of, of how things are involved. I think patients um, are much more um, hopefully informed about their care than what they used to be. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And I guess a question, just listening to both Danielle, you and Glenn respond to that, I think something was becoming clear for me. And and I'd love your sort of thoughts on this, which is I heard you both actually uh, delineate making the decision from having a preference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, co- completely. Mm. That That's something that I think people don't understand very well, is that um, there's a concept uh, called abandonment, right? Um, um, where I give you um, your patient from hell, I give you treatment A and I give you treatment B and I say, what do you want to do? And I stand back. And all of a sudden, you feel the weight of responsibility on your shoulders. I don't know. You're the expert. I have no idea what to do. So that's the decision. And that's scary. And it feels awful. Um, And so in that situation, I take away the decision. All I'm interested in is what your thoughts are about treatment A and treatment B. And if needed... I will guide you as to which way to go, but only when I know more about you and what you think and what your preferences are. So you don't have to give the decision to the patient. You can do shared decision-making much more subtly than that. Uh, I, I think that's such a profound insight. And we, we've actually had quite a few episodes now on decision-making. And I think the delineation that we just made, I think is incredibly profound because I think that moment of deer in headlights, we, we call it deer in headlights. The clinician's asking you something, you're sitting there going, my brain is not processing. It's just, it's, it's blank. There's like a white noise in there and you can't really think through it. But this notion that you're actually being abandoned, which it, it really resonates with me. Um, similar to that, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the flip side of it. And the flip side, I'll just I'll just paint a picture, right? Early stage breast cancer, we have guidelines. And if you end up in a specific subtype of breast cancer, let's just, I'm picking on something, early stage hormone positive breast cancer, let's say your IDC, invasive ductal carcinoma, a relatively small tumor, that there are guidelines. So in that situation, how does shared decision-making play out? Mm-hmm. Because even the clinician may not have decision choice. I mean, they do have decision choice, but 
there is a, I say this with air quotes, algorithm at play. Sure. No, you're right. Um, but, you know, um, from the last understanding I had about guidance, it's not a rule. There's flexibility in guidance, right? It's only guidance. Um, if somebody feels strongly that you can veer away from the guidelines, um, they're not a rail track. Um, it's actually quite a wide corridor. And I, and I think one of the challenges is that some clinicians feel that evidence-based medicine and guidelines are rules, but they're not. They're actually there to guide. Um, and I think within those guidelines, there's a lot of flexibility. And I would argue that, in a, <clears throat> say somebody's got early-stage breast cancer, the guidelines say now that uh, breast-conserving surgery is the way to go. Um, it used to be, by the way, decades ago, that most women would have a mastectomy. Now the guidelines are you should have breast-conserving surgery, a lumpectomy and radiation. <clears throat> mm -hmm. But what if a woman who's, um, and I've used this example quite a few times, who's elderly, who doesn't have any transport, um, is not that concerned anymore about her body image um, and says, you know what, I don't have anybody to take me to radiation six, uh, a few times a, a week for six weeks. And anyway, I heard that radiation gives you a soreness in the breasts. And, and I would prefer to be done with all that. And I would like to have a surgery, a mastectomy, maybe even a double mastectomy. Um, because I just want to finish all this business around surgery and I want to get better. Um, and so who's to say that that woman who's come to a very informed preference about what she wants is doing something against the guidelines? She's not. She's just expressing a strong preference. Um, and, and I think most discerning clinicians understand how to... Um, work within guidelines. And I think most expert clinicians would say, I, I bring in patient preference as well as know what the rules are saying or what the guidelines are saying. Um, so they would integrate that rather than be um, rigid about guidelines. Um, I, I really appreciate that answer. I think the notion of integration is critical and it's something that I personally found hard to grapple against. I, I had early stage breast cancer, HER2 amplified, uh, got diagnosed at 30. So, and very often when the guidelines were used as the rationale for treatment choice, I remember really struggling with that because if you mm -hmm. then peel back the layer on guidelines, early stage breast cancer in young women, your your data is not very robust. Well, that's true. I didn't go into the science part of it, but you're absolutely right. The guidelines themselves is often for a particular individual, not based on many trials. So um, to be rigid to the guidelines is to be rigid to some um, idea of evidence. 
That's exactly rather along than, that line. Rather than strong evidence itself. That's a very good line. Uh, that, that's a very good line. I, 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 it's a phenomenal summary of how at least I feel about guidelines. Uh, on that note, I'd love to kind of, uh, Daniel, pull you into this this sort of dialogue as well, which is, I think in your introduction, you alluded to the project that you're now implementing and in terms of what matters most to patients. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what is the process by which you've been studying women. Uh, I'm just, I'm restricting women, men have breast cancer too, but uh, women with early stage breast cancer and how you've been exploring how individuals are making prefer. How are they making their preferences known? How are they thinking about preferences? Um, would love to pull you in. Yeah. Um, so in the context of uh, that work that you're talking about, we're utilizing these tools called conversation aids. They're just easy kind of tabular tools that compare lumpectomy with radiation versus mastectomy based off patients frequently asked questions. The use of that tool is supposed to help elicit that preference from the patient during the conversation. So we train all the surgeons who are using the tools on this is how you use it very simply, and it's not meant to just be given to the patient for information. We're actually told that that can be actually quite overwhelming. It's meant to be a tool to facilitate the shared decision-making conversation, show the patient what the evidence says between the two treatment options, the pros and cons, and then use that as an opportunity to ask the patient what matters most to them hmm. and have that then guide the conversation to what treatment option they ultimately then choose. In this scenario for breast cancer, as you were aware, you likely do typically choose a treatment option during that surgical consultation. So it's really supposed to really help bolster that conversation and make it easier to flow through and talk about preferences. Can I ask you guys, um maybe a theoretical question here, which is I did look at, I think if I'm not mistaken, this is the option grid, right? That you're referring to, which effectively yes. is a table. It has your two choices or maybe more than two choices with the sort of categories that help you identify and compare the choices against the sort of like common categorization. Fair summary? I'm seeing you guys not. It, yes. it is. Yeah, we use the idea of frequently asked questions. These are questions that people want answers to. And what that does is to say, oh, is it okay to ask that kind of question? Yes, it definitely is. You know, what's the recurrence rate? Um, what are the side effects? What are the possible downsides? So many patients are afraid to ask those kind of questions. Is there a difference in how long I will live if I have this treatment or that treatment? Again, many people have the question in their heads, but they dare not ask it. So that's the, that's the power of these tools because they give you um, the, the right to ask the question. Uh, so I, so my, the reason I was wanting to go down the theoretical side before we kind of come back to this point in time, which is the right to ask the question, I just want to put up in on that for a minute, is, and I have a very naive understanding of this, but if we're looking at decision-making, there seem to be, again, naive understanding, so please correct me, uh, almost two ways of decision-making. There's the idea of like, choose my option, 
i.e. I have options. I'm doing a comparison, pro-con list, risk-benefit analysis, and pick my option. The second is value-driven, goal-driven. I have a goal. I want to get to the goal. The option almost doesn't matter. It's just it's goal-oriented. So I'd love for you, uh, is, that a, is that a fair way to think about it? Um, is the setting driving it, right? Metastatic setting, end-of-life settings, you're more goal-oriented. Options are maybe quite a lot or maybe not that many versus early-state settings where we know kind of what the goal is. I'd love for you to cross-compare those two sort of frameworks. Let, let me take a stab at that and see if um, Danielle agrees with me. Um, most decisions, in my view, are driven by some goal, even if they're unconscious, hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. And and many decisions seem to be intuitive or seem to be driven by emotion, but underneath that intuition or emotion is a goal. Typically, you may not be aware of it, but um, you you say, um, I want to resolve this conflict in my mind. So I'm going to make the decision that feels better for me. So the goal, therefore, is for you to feel better and to be re reassured in some way. So although you might say there are two ways of making decisions, I'm a pretty strongly... Um, tuned in to the fact that whether you're conscious or not, there's always a goal driving your decision. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really helpful is to be clear with people that there is a goal um, that is important here. If you're an elderly woman who's not that concerned about bodily image, there's probably another goal that you have, which is to have quality of life about what you want to do. Um, if you're a young person who never wants to be bothered by the possibility of breast cancer ever, ever again, you might want to go flat. Um, mm -hmm. And that's your goal. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I'm not advocating for any of those myself. I'm just saying there are goals that are driving decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think the job of a good person, a good clinician, is to make those goals as explicit as possible and to make people as aware of those goals as, as is possible. And it, it's not easy, and it may take more than one visit to people to settle on, what is my goal here? Is it to live forever? It doesn't happen. Or is it to live for a long time? Or is it to live my best of the highest quality possible for me? I think most people have that goal, but they're not often aware of it. So, so, Doc, just to uh, probe a little bit deeper on that, right? And Daniel, if you have thoughts, please do, please do jump in. The macro goal, I think to your point, is sometimes elusive, but becomes clearer the more you, the more treatment you get. The micro goals are really hard. True. And what I mean by that is, it, I, I, I distinctly remember this moment, and I, I'm a bioengineer, worked in healthcare, had worked in oncology, so I came in pre-diagnosis, understanding kind of at least high level breast cancer, what the outcomes were going to be. I, I sort of had a decent understanding of 
the odds of me truly, truly dying were not very high. It would be a rare event for me to truly die of early stage breast cancer today. Uh, knock on wood. I should really knock on wood. <laughs> Sometimes statistics defies, uh, defies me now. But it, it, despite that, making a decision on include chemo, not include chemo was actually fairly complicated when it came to the goal, right? So the macro goal was fairly easy to wrap my head around. The treatment goal was actually hard because it feels mm -hmm. very abstract. Mm -hmm. It feels, mm -hmm. uh, despite reading a lot on side effects, um, short-term side effects, long-term side effects, until you have the treatment, until you've experienced what a grade three adverse event feels like of diarrhea, it's very hard because you're sitting there going, okay, you'll get diarrhea and you're going, oh, all right, fair enough. I'll get diarrhea. It's fine. But then grade three diarrhea. Let's just say if I read that on a label today, all of my antennas go up. <laughs> I never want to be in that situation again. Right, sure. so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, those are very interesting points. Um, we've been talking about having a model about goals, which talks about three levels. Um, first, there's symptom, you have a headache. Um, second, there's function. Um, I, I can't read my book because I, mm -hmm. I've got a headache, I've got this symptom. And actually, I'm not going to pass my exam in a year's time because I have a higher goal, a fundamental goal, which is out in time. And you're right, those fundamental goals are more difficult to become aware of. And one of the challenges is that we're very bad at describing the leap from functional to fundamental goals. And what will this treatment or micro-treatment do to that foundational versus functional goal and how long will it last you know a diarrhea that's for a day bad diarrhea for a day okay i'll deal with it but if it's for a month mm, i don't think so um and so we're very bad at describing and actually clinicians are very bad at projecting how long an adverse event or harm will be um and so it's very difficult, actually, for people to become um, aware of what, they, what they're willing to tolerate, if you like. But here's the thing about humans. Um, we're superbly adaptive, right? Um, we know about people in wheelchairs who lose a limb in the war. They said, never want to live if I lose a leg. Well, actually, people do very well. We adapt. Um, and that's one of the challenges of this field is that you, what your decision today about that future is going to be misinformed because you've never experienced that future yourself. And so you don't know how well you could adapt to a future that looks different. And that's one of the big, big challenges of decision making is to try and predict that how well or poorly you will adapt. And that's irresolvable. We, we, cannot, we cannot play you yourself in three years' time. How will you feel? We can only ask you to do your best to predict how you feel in the future. And you will be wrong. 
So, so that actually brings, brings us back to where we opened, right? Which is what, what you just said is what I think I personally struggle with when it comes to patient preference. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I truly genuinely feel uh, like I sit on both sides of this because as a patient, I firmly believe it's my decision and my clinician is guiding me, but it is my decision. It's my body, my outcomes, my decision. And mm-hmm. that I need to get to a point where I feel confident enough that I understand the risks and benefits to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Having said that, given what you just said about adaptability, if I look back to pre-chemo making that decision and having to make a similar decision today, knowing what I know about the exact same treatment and what it did to my body, it had to make the same decision today. I don't know if I would have made the same call. Yeah. Because yes, I adapted, but I also learned both the risk and the benefit in experiencing a certain degree of side effects, in experiencing uh, coming out of it, recovering from it, uh, Mm -hmm. experiencing both sides of it. I'm not sure, right? So given that, I'd love your take on it because going back to kind of the ethical imperative of pulling the patient in, the need to, as a minimum, explore illicit patient preference mm-hmm. as a minimum, right? Because ideally, we want to push them into truly participating in decision-making. I'd have to go back to that, given kind of... Yeah, this, this is difficult, um, which is where clinician experience plays a part, right? Um because there's a judgment here about um, you've seen many patients at this age group with this temperament, with this context, and you're probably aware of who does well with what treatment, even though there may be short-term problems Mm -hmm. with the treatment. You know the data about this person with this kind of cancer, with this kind of context, will in two or three years do very well. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a role, I think, for clinical experience to play its part, but not to overrule the patient's view about that future. And, and it's difficult, I think, because some people would say, I don't want that side effect. I will not tolerate that nausea or vomiting or whatever because I don't, I don't understand the longer-term benefit of the chemotherapy. Um, and I don't want to go through that. So I'm, I'm going to shut my eyes to that. And I think that's the kind of initial reaction to this pain and difficulty of dealing with the treatment side effects. In order to get you to your fundamental outcome, you want to live well um, and as recurrence-free as possible for the next 20 years. So we're going to help you manage this few months of difficulty in order to get you to your fundamental goal. And so that's a deeper level of preference than, you know, are you willing to tolerate chemotherapy for a few weeks? That's a deeper level of understanding about your preference levels and goal-directed decisions. 
I, I think that's uh, incredibly insightful. Because I think you, you just broke it. You broke it down, but you also linked it back to the exploration of goals and how goals are at different levels. So then naturally patient preferences at different levels and presumably decision-making that is coming out of the goal and the preference and the option set that is created is presumably also at different levels. I think that's right. Um, I mean, you know, we've walked through that scenario of, I want to understand if you like, uh, Danielle Shuby's goals before I begin to um, try and get, if she is the kind of person that doesn't want to make a decision, then I'd want to know her goals before I almost describe the options and the adverse and harms. Yes. And And one of the challenges of that even is to say, she'll probably say to me, well, I want to live as long as possible and as high quality a life as possible. Um, and then I would say, absolutely understood. But let me dig a little bit deeper. What kind of surgical outcome are you looking for hmm. in terms of breast cancer? Is reconstruction on your mind? Is no reconstruction on your mind? Because they've got different ways of, um, there are different complications to those issues. And, you know, there are different ways we can go down. So you're not just dealing with one decision about whether to have surgery or not. You're dealing with chemotherapy and then reconstruction. So you really need um, a roadmap before you set out on this journey. Yes. Yes. Uh, for, for a later conversation, you and I can come back to roadmaps. We'll, we'll put that for a later conversation. Uh, Related to that, I'm going to come back to Option Grid and what uh, you both had created and are now implementing. Uh, when I, I prior to this uh, recording, I had looked at the Option Grid and I was exploring some of the uh, aids that you guys have created. I think they're excellent and phenomenal. And if you're comfortable with it, we will link to it in our show notes so that patients can see it. But my question for you is the following. In some of the Option Grids, we're comparing... Uh, I shouldn't say equal choices because they're not equal choices, but they're at least comparable choices, hmm. right? You're comparing sort of, uh, we're not comparing um, lumpectomy to hormone therapy, as an example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We really are comparing lumpectomy to mastectomy plus minus reconstruction. But my question for you is the following, which is why not also include do nothing? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, There are situations, I think, where do-nothing is really important. Um, but we want these tools used by surgeons. Um, we want surgeons to be happy to use them. And the feedback we've got is, if you put do-nothing on this tool, we will never use it. So it's very pragmatic. Um, well, because for them, it it doesn't compute that they would even raise the possibility of doing nothing. They would. It's not in their mindset. I think this is especially in the case of breast cancer, knowing that 
you're a patient, you have cancer, we, you're here because we're going to treat it. Um, where maybe in this situation, having no, no as a treatment option isn't a, isn't a treatment option. Um, but like Glenn was explaining, there are other conditions that we've explored where no to anything is a, is a, is a solid choice. And it's, we kind of phrase it more as like a watch and wait kind of thing. Um, but in the case of breast cancer, it would be hard to imagine a patient not wanting to seek some type of treatment unless it was, you know, there, there could be a totally different scenario in terms of age and things like that, in which case, you know, I don't even know if we would suggest the use of that, you know, conversation or option grid for, for those patients. I feel like that those would be very uh, right. rare scenarios. And, uh, can you and, more... uh, and I want to come back. Um, it's not that some people will say, some patients will say, I don't want this to be treated. And the surgeons sh should explore that, absolutely. And, and if it turns out to be an adamant wish, should respect it. I'm not saying you know, that people sh shouldn't have the right to do that. But it's not, we wanted these tools to be accepted widely by the profession. And we knew, I think, that if we said in this situation, we are going to put a column called no treatment, they would just no, never use it. Uh, you know, one of the analogies would be um, whether to breastfeed or bottle feed a baby. Okay. What about no, no feeding? Oh. <laughs> right? Let's let's starve this baby. That's one of the situations where the no choice doesn't make sense. Interesting. Uh, so the reason I ask that it's actually such a it's a great analogy. I, I think if you compare to that analogy, it makes actually a lot of sense to me. Uh, but can I can I just play devil's advocate for one? Sure. One, one You're the patient from hell after all, right? <laughs> I have to do this. I know. <laughs> You can you, you get a now you get a sense of like how uh, my oncologists I think love me, but <laughs> I definitely drove them a little nutty. Uh, fully fully embrace that. Um, but but just to just to provide a little bit of a different perspective on that, the reason I ask that is I, I remember this moment where this was second or third call with my oncologist and. My diagnosing oncologist was different than my treating oncologist, but the diagnosing oncologist and I were on the phone and he was explaining to me kind of um, the potential paths coming ahead. And I remember kind of going back and forth and me like, should I ask this question? Should I not ask this question? And I, I eventually, it, it took me a lot of emotional turmoil to even ask the question, which was, let's say I did nothing. No chemotherapy, no radiation, no surgery. Mm -hmm. And there was a long pause mm -hmm. and he goes, you know, I never got that question, but if that were true, you would not be here in two years. And the journey in two years, you would get progressively sicker and you would not survive. Now I remember that, but the reason I say that is in the absence of that answer, I didn't know what mm -hmm. the baseline was. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I, I I agree with you that the baseline is really important. Um, 
most people have a fear of cancer and breast cancer. They've seen people die with it that they kind of are subconsciously or, or consciously aware that this is a death sentence. Um, and actually, um, if you go back a few decades, people have seen people die with breast cancer, which was really terrible. Um, and so there's a memory of that in some generations. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but that's not the reason that it's not on the tool. I I, I would always say, actually, to um, many people, we always put the no treatment on these option grids where we can. But, but we do want them used by surgeons and we don't want them to be um, rejected as tools. Yeah. So it really comes down to kind of the truly practical implementation of the tool versus the... Yes. It's not the principle. It's not the principle. No, no. Uh, In principle, we should put on, you will likely not survive very well and you will have a disfiguring cancer. That would be the answer. Um, But we don't need to, and surgeons wouldn't want that on the tool. I really appreciate it. I'm watching the clock, and uh, as promised, we are way over our time limit. Uh, but as a sort of a quick conclusion, I'm going to try and summarize it and then invite you guys to add any additional thoughts you have in it and edit or modify anything I, I fail to summarize or, or try and summarize uh, so uh, we, we've explored a, a few, whole number of things. We started with the ethical imperative to include and not to include the patient in the process of decision-making. We then explored how it is that we make uh, decisions, both in terms of eliciting patient preference and how that may be the base requirement to involving the patient, but ideally we'd be going from a preference into true, true decision-making where the patient is actively engaged, involved, uh, and participating with their clinician, uh, where a lot of the burden of that process really does sit with the clinician to help elicit goals, both uh, symptom-driven goals, functional goals, and then fundamental or foundational goals that the patient or the family members may have as they are included in that process. We explored the notion of abandonment that can happen to a patient where when a treatment choice is given to them, but the information and the knowledge or the way of making a choice is not given to them, they may experience abandonment or that deer in headlights moment. We explored the difference between options and goals and how goals are really always there. And after exploring and giving definition to a goal, we then come into options. We spoke about option grids and this incredible tool that you have created and that y'all are implementing right now with uh, breast surgeons as an example of one of these tools where it really does show the patient through facilitation with a conversation with the clinician, what is the pro and con list of the surgeries available to them in early stage breast cancer. And then we now finally explored this last notion of like, what does choice mean? But what does no choice mean? And how is that important or not important in different settings? Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything that I missed? Anything that you want to highlight? Anything you want to edit? Um, 
Shubi, um, I call Danielle Shubi, by the way. Um, Shubi, we haven't talked about the three uh, goal model, three talk, three three talk model of shared decision making. Do you want to walk the patient from help from the three three talk model? You developed it. <laughs> well, no, but you know it. Um, you, you probably know it by heart. Um, from I'm, patient... I'm trying to remember. Well, so there's team talk, option talk, and decision talk. So why is team talk important, Danielle? Um, in this case, I think we've been talking a lot about this as it's a shared decision. And so in order for the clinician to create that environment, they need to be saying things and inviting the patients into the decision-making process and using words in their consultation and speaking with the patient, giving them notes that, hey, you're not alone in making this decision. We're going to make it together. Um, and I think that that touches on a lot of the pieces that we've talked about today, um, because it sounds like making the decision on either end is if the patient either experiences abandonment or the clinician's just choosing for the patient and there's no patient preference at all. And maybe, maybe the patient's upset. So that team talk is extremely um, important to start the conversation. Then there's the option talk. That's when you present if there are more than one option for the patient in terms to consider for their treatment, mm -hmm. that's when you go over all the nitty gritty of the pros and cons of the, in our case for early stage breast cancer, two surgical treatment options in a way that is hopefully not really overwhelming for the patient. That's why we use convert. That's why we use the option grid. It's really plain language. We have a version that's mostly picture based using something that is very patient friendly and usable to facilitate that shared decision-making conversation, which hopefully gets the patient to the point of having more of a decision talk, mm -hmm. finally getting down to the points of, okay, you've told me this is what your preferences are. We're leaning toward this direction. Is this your treatment choice? And ultimately making a decision together on what the patient then pursues is the three talk yeah. model. <laughs> so I got the team, I got the option. What was the third one? Decision talk. Decision talk. Got it. Is that right, Glenn? Yeah, absolutely. You got it. Um, and, you know, we train surgeons on that. And actually, the most important of these three is probably team talk at the beginning, is to say, um, I'm going to do something now that you may not have met before. I'm going to give you treatment choices, not because I'm um, don't know what to do. I'm not because I'm ignorant, because I want to hear your views about these treatments. And But don't worry, I'm never going to abandon you to make a decision on your own if you don't want to. So that's the most important bit. And when we look at uh, transcripts of meetings, we don't see this happen very often. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. I mean, it's a whole precursor to the patient from hell. I, I say that in jest, but I, I do think that if what you are describing happened consistently, you wouldn't need the patient to, uh, advocate is not the right word, but to, to push, right? Sure. Because the push and pull kind of happens because there isn't a structured sure. interaction at play. 
True. And it Very really true. is left heavily to chance, which is how am I showing up in the room? How's the clinician showing up in the room? What kind of day have I had? What kind of day have they had? And like, how have we shown up? And that same interaction, if there were a structure to it, like the one you are describing, I'd imagine that uh, we wouldn't well, be here talking about it. I guess not. But here, here's the final, I think, thing I'd like to say is that we, I think this is better way that patients receive care. I, I firmly believe that. I also think that's more rewarding for clinicians. This is the way that they would benefit most professionally by doing their practice at a very high level. It would give them intrinsic reward, I feel. Um, we, we, we haven't re done much research into that yet, but I think it would be true. I think that is an absolutely beautiful place to end. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for taking your time from your busy schedules and the incredible work that you do. Uh, I'm going to say something maybe personal for Danielle, which is I believe she's submitting her thesis today. And for anybody listening in, you're going to be listening in a few months after we've done this recording. But uh, if we can congratulate her on four hard, hard years of work, uh, please join Absolutely. me in doing that. Uh, thank you for taking our time today on a pretty important day and joining us. So uh, we really appreciate you and appreciate everything you said. Thank you, Samira. This episode was supported by an award from the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. This podcast, show notes, and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.